Hey, Bay. It is I, your sorceress of the sound waves, your princess of podcasting, Nika. <laughs> if you're new here, welcome. Glad to have you. And if you're a returning listener, it's good to have you back. So, first things first. Happy New Year, everybody. Hopefully, 2021 treats us much better than 2020 did. This week, we're diving into Shonda Rhimes's newest Netflix series, Bridgerton. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, I am a huge period piece nerd. I get completely lost in Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice, Wuthering Heights, Downton Abbey, and the list goes on. So, when Miss Rhymes blessed us with this new piece of Regency-inspired cinematography, well, my vintage heart squeaked and quaked within my chest in triumphant applause for the unapologetic representation depicted in Bridgerton. Not only was this series as diverse as the Rogers and Hammerstein version of Cinderella, but it premiered on a Christmas day. Christmas! I feel like Shonda herself had mercy on me after this train wreck that was 2020 and blessed me with yet another tasty morsel to satiate my long-standing anglophilia. What's an anglophile, you say? <laughs> it's a person who admires England its people, its culture, and the English language. Yeah, I know, I know. It's problematic as fuck. But, you know, I don't look past the colonization and the countless other issues that England has bestowed upon the world. But my mom is from there, along with half my family, and I have yet to step foot across the pond. My romanticizing isn't meant to negate or dismiss any of atrocities, but rather to celebrate and devour the literature that emerged from a place and time very different than my own. And frankly, if I'm going to survive this world with any semblance of black girl joy, then I have to seize my happiness where I can find it. I stay open to removing problematic people, places, and ideologies, but seize the fucking joy. Anyway, what makes Bridgerton so special? Well, as a Black woman, again, who loves period pieces, I often feel erased from the genre altogether or tokenized by depictions of main characters of color being untrustworthy or demonic or straight-up slaves and servants, depending on the era. For example, Wuthering Heights, the only finished novel by Emily Bronte, it explores soulmates and vengeance, loss, generational trauma, and some arguable mental health disorders that may or may not be the result of racism. The jury's still out on that. Either way, it's an amazing read or watch, depending on your poison of choice. And one of the main characters, Heathcliff, is described as a dark-skinned gypsy. Some argue that he's black, but that's heavily debated although the latest film adaptation did portray him as a black man. Either way, Heathcliff is a cruel, cold, and calculated individual who is mistreated and learns to viciously wield the weapons of his enemies against them. 
Another classic representation of Blackness can be found in the story of Jane Eyre, one of my personal favorites, despite its incredibly sad undertones. Now, this part might be worth giving a quick spoiler alert, so if you want to fast forward past, I will wait two seconds. Okay, hopefully you had enough time to fast forward if you don't want spoilers. So, one of the novel's characters, Mr. Rochester, is married to a woman called Bertha Mason. She's the only daughter of a really wealthy family living in Spanish town, Jamaica, and it's known that she's of Creole heritage. Now, Rochester and Bertha began living in Jamaica and then eventually relocated to his estate in France called Thornfield Hall. So it's a big deal. Well, through a series of events, Bertha goes mad and is locked in the attic. Now, viewers of the movie won't find out about this until Rochester tries to remarry and Bertha's brother stops the wedding because clearly this man has a wife. Surprisingly, we're not made to feel sympathetic for Bertha or her situation, but rather for Rochester because he's trapped in this loveless marriage. Uh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I can go on and on about this and how the cover-up was so well hidden, but the most important part of this story is that while Bertha's race isn't explicitly mentioned, it's heavily implied that she was mixed. It's also worth noting that writers of the time believed that madness resulted from quote-unquote impure bloodlines. Mm-hmm. So you might be wondering... Bitch, why are you obsessed with these period pieces if they all show cruel and crazy POCs? Fair, fair. But I'm not, I'm not going to give in to that because they're not all crazy. They're not all terrible, I swear. More recent depictions <laughs> have included Jack Ross, a very selfless and fearless 1930s jazz musician from Chicago. He plays the love interest to one of the... Uh, Crawley family members, I guess. Is she Crawley? I, whatever. He plays love interest to somebody in Downton Abbey. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's the only Black character in the series. He does not come in until season four, and we never hear from him again. Um, But there's also other really good depictions, like Belle, not the Disney version. Um, It's a movie about Dido Elizabeth Bell, who is a British heiress and a member of the Lindsay family. Born into slavery, her mother, Maria Bell, was an African slave in the British West Indies, and her father, Sir John Lindsay, was a British career naval officer who was stationed there. It's a really lovely film that explores the difficulty of navigating the 1700s as a mixed-race Black woman in a stark white world. Like, there is no doubting that she's Black. Um, it's also, there's a really great portrait of her peeking out from behind a bush. And this isn't just like the movie. This like this is an actual portrait of the real woman. Google Dido Bell. You'll see what I mean. She's looking out of this bush like, yeah, bitches, I exist. Now what? <laughs> it's great. So if series is your thing, there's also some good representation in Harlots on Hulu. It's about prostitutes. So, you know, put the kids to bed first um, and call the midwife. Funny enough, the latter, which takes place in a nun-owned midwife house in the 1950s. Always sounds like I'm watching porn full blast because it's a midwife house and they're delivering babies every episode. So my neighbors are real happy about that. <laughs> All right. 
So we have talked about negative tropes, some positive tokenism, and even historically accurate cheeky depictions. Now let's dive into Bridgerton. (sighs) It's honestly Gossip Girl meets Pride and Prejudice, and I'm here for it. From the opening scene, we the viewers are greeted by this mysterious Mrs. Whistledown, who seems to know and gladly share everybody's business. This Big Brother-esque narrative has many of the aristocratic families on their toes, And a new season has just started, so all of their daughters are being presented at court. Um, And of course, to Queen Charlotte. For those of you that are unfamiliar, being out in society means that you're now eligible for marriage. And since ladies traditionally didn't have power or property, um, husbands were vital for upward mobility. That's where you hear the term advantageous marriage. Husbands were also important for security and merging or strengthening of wealthy families. Uh, On the other hand, being a spinster, which is usually dreaded. It's like this trope that's often used in Regency era uh, films and whatnot. Um, Yeah, that meant that you brought like ultimate disappointment and shame on your family. Um, It's only one notch below being ruined or, you know, a hoe, or as Mrs. Featherington would say, having loose skirts. (laughs) This is not the last time you will hear my terrible British accent. So some folks are up in arms about the Black characters in the series, and they're claiming that it makes the series historically inaccurate. But my dears, despite what anyone claims, we existed. Just like with Dido Bell, there were other Black and mixed aristocrats in the Regency era. In fact, there's some amazing portraits of uh, Black aristocrats. And I wish I had specific ones to give you. You can definitely Google it. And if anyone's interested, um, just send me an email and I can like send them out to you. Um, but something else that was particularly striking was that Jane Austen, in her last unfinished novel, Sandington, I hope I'm saying that right, was centering the um, the whole book around this West Indian heiress, Georgiana Lamb. And Georgiana was particularly sought after in her season because every single man wanted to be with her. She was wealthy and she was beautiful. Um, I think there's a, what was it? Like Masterpiece Theater. I think they created some kind of thing about it. I haven't watched it yet, but I will definitely check that out. So yes, that was called... San, Sanditon, um, S-A-N-D-I-T-O-N. So if you're interested in this stuff as much as I am, please go check it out. So not only did we exist, my BIPOC beauties, but if folks wanted to harp on historical inaccuracy, they need to address the musky elephant in the room, aka European hygiene, which leading up to the Regency era was beyond appalling or altogether non-existent. It really sparked from fears that were commonplace um, post-bubonic plague. The plague was nicknamed Black Death, and it was a pandemic that killed 30 to 16%. 30 to 60, good grief. It killed 30 to 60% of 14th century Europe, the whole population. Now, I get that this might be triggering for some folks considering the times, so I won't dwell here. But my point is that 
Folks frequently used bathhouses before the plague, but society began accepting a conspiracy theory that warm baths made it easier for infection to enter your body, and they stopped bathing. So Europe grew dirtier, and um, clothes, which weren't made out of the most breathable materials, it was often like really thick things that were impenetrable because they were worried that the disease would get in, those things remained soiled. So you can imagine people not bathing, wearing the same things that were soiled would kind of permeate a smell. So, you know, if you'd like to talk about quote unquote real historical accuracy, then I suggest you boycott these films and shows until they're able to weave in the unwashed masses and the side effects like lice, really poor skin, terrible dental hygiene, and excessive amounts of perfume that these folks used to mask the overpowering stench that was coming from their bodies. But I digress. (laughs) So if you do not want to hear details about Bridgerton, I don't know why you clicked on this episode, but if you made it this far and you don't want to hear specifics, this is another spoiler alert. All right. Three, two, one. Let's talk. Considering that most of my indulgence in these types of period pieces are white as fuck, I loved seeing black and brown representation on screen. Representation in regard to literal skin color, since the nuances of black culture weren't accurately depicted. Regardless, faces that looked like mine were refreshing and exciting in a way that I couldn't have predicted. It was also really a unique opportunity to see what things might have looked like if Queen Charlotte, who was of significant African ancestry, had made things easier for Africans in terms of upward mobility and in terms of them being accepted by society. Also, I love a good cover song. So hearing classic versions of Ariana Grande, Billie Eilish, Maroon 5, and so many others was a fun little modern twist. It reminds me of what they did with Rain, which is about Mary, Queen of Scots. It's another Netflix show. So if you're interested in that, check it out. I do wish some of the covers were more diverse, you know, like blacker. (laughs) But again, it's leaps and bounds away from the norm. So I'll take what I can get. The story itself did feel a bit predictable, but the problems of this era tend to reappear from one series to the next i.e. the whole thing about worrying about being a spinster and moms who are like, you know, kind of overbearing because they want to marry their daughters off and rich men. And there's even like some gay tropes that reappear Um, a lot of a lot. I mean, not in this particular show, but in a lot of other period pieces, they often talk about closeted men who are married to women and cheat on them. Um, There's one really interesting show on HBO. Um, Gentleman Jack. Yeah. So that one's really good too. It's actually um, a woman. I don't really know the era per se. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but um, she is a lesbian and she owns, uh, like she's a landlord to a bunch of people and she is trying to navigate society with her sexuality not being weaponized against her or not sexuality, but her sexual identity not being weaponized against her. So pretty interesting. Um, anyway, um, despite the predictability of some parts, I did think that the inclusion of masturbation and the pull-out method was a nice little kinky touch. (laughs) 
I feel like sex is so taboo in these things that it tends to be very vanilla and not like I'm trying to get every single period piece to be like um, the tutors. Although, ooh, chow, that one was really good. Holy crap. Like if you haven't seen the tutors, what are you doing with your life? Go check it out. Please go check it out. It's so good. It's about Tudor era England, clearly, and um, King Henry and his uh, bevy of wives. Yes. So, <laughs> getting off course. Some folks were up in arms about Daphne Bridgerton and Simon, the Duke of Hastings, being glorified as an interracial couple. But honestly, I feel like the series downplayed race until one conversation between the Duke and, um, what's her name? Was it his aunt? Like, until that one convo where they were just like, oh yeah, she opened, the queen opened the door for us and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, race is important. Like, race matters. I thought this was a colorblind world. Um, it didn't seem particularly important that they were of different races. And in the book, everyone's white. And we all know Shonda Rams was a good interracial pairing. So it seemed par for the course, you know? I wasn't really losing sleep over it. However, um, I thought it was interesting that they brought that one little conversation about race into it. Because then that changed my whole thinking. I was like, well, this feels more uncomfortable um some folks have reservations with the centering of whiteness in bridgerton and again since this is based on a book where all the characters are white it is a bit disorienting to weave the narrative around black characters without entirely changing key elements but it's painfully clear that the showcasing of black skin doesn't always equate to the representation of Black people or Black experiences. And while I'm visually satisfied with Bridgerton, my soul is desperately left wanting. The Duke, Queen Charlotte, Lady Danbury, Marina Thompson, and other characters of color simply didn't have the essence of Blackness that's often embodied with juggling racism or ancestral displacement, forging their own paths or their own seats in society that, you know, to make to make sure that they have space in a society that wasn't made for them. While I understand wanting to stay close to the source material, certain allowances have to be made for Black characters to feel realistic in this era. At least, I can't suspend belief that Queen Charlotte would make provisions for Black people without having any pushback or societal side-eyes or sabotage. Also, I agree with pushback around the sexual assault scene. Now, this is the scene where Daphne is essentially, you know, she's straddling Simon and they're fucking. Um, and she essentially forces him to come inside her instead of having him ejaculate in his handkerchief or whatever. It seemed innocent on the surface. Like, we're supposed to feel bad for her because he kept preventing them from having a baby, blah, blah, blah. But to be honest, if the tables were turned, right, and she didn't want to have a child, but he pinned her down and came inside her anyway, this would be all kinds of problematic. So why is it okay in reverse? Like, if the fucked up shoe fits, wear it, Daphne. Outside of non-consensual insemination and blackwashing, <laughs> there's the issue of colorism. In Bridgerton, light-skinned characters, they're seen as more desirable or sexually promiscuous, right? A la Marina and Simon, 
they're like, you know, it's like, oh, Marina had this life where she had a baby and she did. Okay, cool. And Simon is just kind of like a hoe, right? They call him a rake and he just kind of, you know, you can tell he's sexually promiscuous. His, uh, his reputation precedes him. Um, so yeah, they're, they have that whole thing. And the darker skin characters are typically aggressive or cunning a la um, uh, Simon's dad and the guy who's a boxer. I don't remember his name. Um, and uh, what's your name? Lady Danbury. Like all very, I mean, the guy who was a boxer seemed a little bit nicer, but still him being a boxer and poor and like, you know, kind of doing this whole betting thing. I don't know. It seemed like they tried to make at least his wife seem opportunistic as fuck. So there's still that. I'm happy for all the melanin, but I'm disappointed that yet again, we're perpetuating these negative stereotypes and tropes. Overall, I appreciate Bridgerton for what it was, and I really enjoyed seeing Black bodies on screen in a representation of this time period, but I do hope that they're able to more intentionally flesh out Black people in season two. I mean, if there's a season two. Now, I know that's probably not going to happen if they keep following the books, but with all the feedback and with Bridgerton reigning number one on Netflix, anything's possible. Now, whether Shonda Rhimes accepts my two cents or not, if they come out with another season of Bridgerton, I'll be watching. All right, so it's time for this week's kink or quirk of the week. Oh, man. All right, so this week's kink or quirk is going to be (laughs) self-soothing. That's the nice way to put it. With all the talk about a third strain of this pandemic, I'm feeling stressed the fuck out. I don't know about y'all, but it just, it feels like every time we think we get a little bit further, we get gut punched. And I don't know how everybody's coping, but I've been trying to get back into meditation and other extracurricular activities to relieve tension. With this new year in full effect, I wanted to encourage you all to do the same. So... In honor of Miss Daphne Bridgerton and her nocturnal excursions, here are some benefits for masturbation that might help you uh, self-soothe during these stressful times. So according to Insider, masturbation improves your heart health. So similar to exercise, it gets your blood pumping. So the next time you want to take care of your health, maybe take care of yourself. Number two, it helps you sleep better at night. I mean, most of you should know this, right? Like after you have an orgasm, you're drained, you're feeling good, you get all those endorphins. It's kind of like you don't even have to try to fall asleep. You're going to have some good restful sleep. So if you want to knock out, maybe get off first. Number three, reduced risk of prostate cancer. Men, (laughs) I guess the next time you spend a little too long in the bathroom or wherever it is you jerk off, you can just tell yourself or your partner that you're doing your part to, you know, reduce your risk of cancer. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I, okay. If you do try that, please let me know how it goes. (laughs) 
it's you can't blame me for it, but let me know how it goes. Um, essentially, what it does is it reduces your risk of prostate cancer by flushing toxins through ejaculation. Number four, it strengthens your pelvic floor. Ladies, this is for you. Number five, it reduces your risk of vaginal infection. So if you want to prevent a UTI, then DIY. (laughs) Number six, it increases immune function. Orgasms result in small increases in cortisol and stimulates your immune function. It also gives you the chance to truly enjoy safe sex. No explanation needed. The last two is that it's a confidence booster. It gives you a perfect opportunity to get to know your body and your sexual response. And once you know what you like, you become more vocal. (laughs) Last but not least, better sex. Learning about yourself through masturbation gives you the knowledge you need to make sure that you know how to get yourself off. So, happy masturbating. That's it for this week's episode. If you want to slide into my DMs, send me an email at kinkyquirkypod at gmail.com. Or you can send me a voice message and I'll put it in the next episode. You can find info for that in the show notes. But until next time, keep it kinky, keep it quirky, and remember to embrace all your parts. Bye-bye.